Christchurch, New Morgan, 26th of January, 2020, 11 o'clock service. Becky Mills speaking in the series, Romans and the Covenant, Covenant Living. So, Covenant Living, Romans 12, living a life of true worship. In our series on Romans in the past few months, Paul's addressing the fledgling Christian community in Rome. And we've seen how dense and theological the argument is. In the first half of Romans, Paul lays out God's wonderful rescue plan for the world. So what were the headlines? God's covenant faithfulness throughout human history, despite human frailty. His defeat of evil through the death of Jesus. His offer of forgiveness to all who will receive him, whether Jew or Gentile. His gift of the Holy Spirit, drawing us into a living relationship with him, transforming us and freeing us from the ritual demands of the Jewish law and the punishments for breach of them. That is his master plan. Is Paul then anticipating questions that the Gentile community in Rome might be coming back with? The main issue that Stephen has been addressing in the past three weeks in chapters 9 to 11 is this. If that is God's brilliant master plan of rescue for the whole world, how come so few Jews accepted it? The people God chose to reveal himself to right from the beginning. We're left with a bit of a dilemma, aren't we? Why were Israel's hearts in the main hardened against the inclusive nature of God's love that Jesus embodied? Why did they refuse to acknowledge that God's love is offered to all, whether Jew or Gentile? Why is there still this pull towards tribalism and exclusivity? And the answer Paul has is that this is not the end of the story. The Jews will ultimately be grafted back into the family of God. He urges the Romans to trust in God's covenant faithfulness shown throughout the ages and to hope that the large-scale Jewish rejection of Jesus is being used to fulfill, fulfill God's greater purposes for humanity. The covenant agreement, enshrined in the Jewish law, set a pattern of living where there's a fusion between the sacred and secular. A holistic vision for living a life of obedience to God. And it's just that idea of covenant living, that holistic vision, which embraces all of life that spurs Paul on to begin chapter 12 by saying, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Paul is talking about this vision for living the Christian life with our bodies, our minds, and our spirits. Chapter 12 is all about covenant living, living a life of true worship. 
So we'll begin by unpacking what it means to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. God is clearly not asking us all to literally lay down our lives. See, what does sacrifice mean according to the pattern of the world? Is it just a dead metaphor? A figure of speech? Or does it still have some appeal in the popular imagination? I would argue that it does. It still carries a sense of costly self-giving in the interests of some higher good, often including the shedding of blood. War is perhaps the obvious thing that springs to mind. And President Clinton gave a powerful speech at the US Cemetery in Normandy in June 1994 on the 50th anniversary of the D-Day landings. Facing the serried ranks of 9,386 white marble markers above Omaha Beach, he began. We are the children of your sacrifice. You were the fathers we never knew, the uncles we never met, the friends who never returned the heroes we can never repay. You gave us our world. So sacrifice is still widely regarded as something inspirational. It captures everybody's hearts, doesn't it? But sacrifice has lost its original meaning, which comes from two Latin words, and it means to make holy. At first sight, there's no obvious connection between the idea of giving something up and the idea of making something holy. But when you bring a life to God or a gift to God, it becomes his. It's no longer yours. It becomes holy with the holiness of God. All that we do and think can be made holy if it's offered up as a gift to God. So our, our whole selves, our whole lives, even the most mundane details, are a sacramental offering to God. That's, that's covenant living. That's living a life of true worship. We often think of worship as a moment when we're praising God, emotionally connecting, feeling his presence. This is worship, of course, but it's not the only form by any means, or even the most complete form. It's worship because it's a moment of focusing all of our attention, our thoughts and feelings towards God. But true worship is turning all of ourselves, all of our lives, towards God. And our minds are crucially important. In 12.2, Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's not allowing the ever-changing current of the world to determine the way that you look at life. It means not letting popular opinion be the lens through which we see the world. It's about letting our minds be reprogrammed so that our default way of thinking is to seek God 
in all things. Ultimately, the goal is to see all things through the lens of Jesus and pointing towards Jesus. That is living a life of true worship. Of true worship. We need to engage our minds then, as well as our hearts, if we are to live a life of true worship. If you have a detached retina in your eye, you're unable to see things clearly. If your mind becomes detached, you're unable to think things through clearly. We often discuss our thoughts as if they're emotions, don't we? We'd rather say, hmm, I feel this is wrong. It's more polite and less confrontational than saying, I think this is wrong. The next step is allowing our feelings to replace our thoughts altogether. So what looks like a reasoned discussion from the outside is actually an exchange of emotions. Of course, our emotions are going to influence us too, but we mustn't allow our feelings to override our thoughts and our minds to become detached. For example, our recent campaign on sending digital Christmas cards if the option was available to you, of course, met with some opposition. Climate change is such a live issue at the moment, isn't it? We have to reduce our carbon footprint to net zero by the middle of this century to stop irreparable damage to the planet. This is a massive, massive task. We have a biblical command to look after God's earth. And we in the Eco Church Action Group all thought this was a brilliant way to reduce our individual carbon footprint. But a lot of us, including me, are emotionally invested in sending and receiving paper cards at Christmas. It makes us feel loved and appreciated and connected with our church community and our wider network of family and friends. We think it's not going to make much difference to our carbon footprint anyway. Yet, if we engage our minds and look at the facts, a standard email is four kilograms CO2 equivalent and a paper card 140 kilograms CO2 equivalent, our reasoning might have told us otherwise. But we on the action group were guilty as well because we didn't think to back up our reasoning, our campaign with reasoned argument. We just assumed people would be on board with it. Yet unless we give reasons backed up by evidence, why should people take us seriously? We could have been using our minds better too. It's so important to engage our minds as well as our emotions before making any decision about what is right or wrong. We have to get our minds around factual evidence, perhaps by doing our own research in a way that makes sense to us as well as scriptural evidence to make the right decision. A much bigger environmental issue is air travel. According to the European Environment Agency, rail travel accounts for 14 grams CO2 emissions per passenger mile, which is dwarfed by the 285 grams generated by air travel. All the Sunday supplements and the majority of magazines entice us all to fly abroad despite our carbon footprint. And there's no denying that it's a wonderful way to experience the beauty and diversity 
of God's creation. It has a huge emotional appeal, doesn't it? But we can't do this at the expense of our planet. So to renew our minds and not be squeezed into the mold dictated by the present age, where economic growth is the touchstone for human progress, we need to engage with what the Bible says as well as use our minds. Secondly, some of us might think theology is dry and stuffy. We agree that it has its place, that it forms the backdrop of our Christian belief, but we can only really tolerate it in bite-sized pieces, otherwise it's too much and we switch off. It's crucial though, because it does impact the sort of people we become. We need to renew our minds with the truth of scripture and be willing to learn something fresh. About 10 years ago, I had to get my head around the fact that my eternal destiny wasn't floating around in another, in another dimension for all eternity. Because the book of Revelation teaches that there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and they will be joined together when God floods the whole earth with his presence. It will be a covenant renewal of the earth. The earth will be released from its bondage to death and decay. God brings his rescue to both humanity and creation. And part and parcel of covenant living is that we've all been called to be part of God's renewed creation. The new world will be more real, more solid than the present one. I had to renew my thinking about my future destiny. And that had a real impact on the way I lived and still live. Rather than that idea of escaping to another dimension of celestial bliss, the biblical vision is that we're called to being part of the kingdom of God, helping to build a new future in the here and now. And that's really motivating for me. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul continues his theme of not being squeezed into the shape dictated by the present age in the next section. In verse 3 he says, Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each one of you. However great or lowly we might seem by the world's standards, we're all part of the same body, the work of the same creator. A good way to train ourselves in humility is by recognising the good in others. Actively seek to affirm the place of others in the church, especially those you don't get on so well with. Once we've lifted others up, the next step is to find our own place in the body. Everyone has gifts and talents, and they are, definitely aren't limited to the examples Paul gives in verse 6. Some may feel called to pray for something or someone very specific, and that might be your individual gift. If you struggle to see your own, ask your spouse or a close friend 
prayerfully consider how you might best use your individual gifts for the benefit of the church community if you're not already. Offering your gifts and talents to God is a practical way to love and build up others and is offering all of ourselves to God and living a life of true worship. And that flows into what Paul says in 12.10. Be devoted to one another in love. With the gifts that God has given you, commit yourselves to community. Service and devotion are some of the most important ways to live a life of true worship. And there are so many opportunities to do this at Christchurch and, of course, in Grapevine, the night shelter and the community cafe. Hospitality and welcome are sacramental. It's giving even those on the edges a central place of honour at the Lord's table. At first, we might be hesitant to make room for someone outside our usual social circle. But hospitality and generosity don't just bring new people into God's family. They also change us from the inside out as we offer our hospitality and love up to God as part of our worship. Loving people we don't naturally feel comfortable with is one of the hardest things Jesus calls us to do. And this flows into what Paul says in verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Well, that doesn't seem kind, does it? <laughs> it helps to know, though, that Paul is quoting from Proverbs. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. That saying is in the middle of several proverbs that use physical images to describe emotional reactions. Heaping burning coals on someone's head is about the emotional discomfort someone you are finding hard to get on with will feel when you're kind and loving. It's a picture of stirring a sense of remorse in the person. When they see your kindness in the face of their meanness. Paul's emphasising here the truth that good triumphs over evil. Love overcomes hatred. And by not loving someone who makes us feel uncomfortable, by holding grudges or storing up resentment, we're ultimately becoming the evil that is part of the pattern of this world that we don't want us to squeeze our minds into. In conclusion then, covenant living. Living a life of true worship is about holistic living. It's about offering every part of life to God in worship. Offering up the whole of our lives turns the, sac the secular into the sacred. It's about engaging our minds as well as our emotions. 
It's about using the Bible as our starting point, but using reasoned argument too. It's about being open to understanding more about God and the impact that knowledge has on our covenant living. It's about using our gifts to love and build up others when the world says otherwise. It's about overcoming the evil in the world with love. It's a homecoming. It's saying we belong to God and can only find wholeness and completion by giving ourselves up to him. It echoes St. Augustine's famous prayer. Almighty God, in whom we live and move and have our being, you have made us for yourself so that our hearts are restless until they rest in you. <laughs>